For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how Tucson teachers are rallying to improve education. An old sport gains new popularity among women and girls of the Tohono O'odham Nation. Flute player Gary Stroutsos explores ancient traditions through music. And Love Letters to the Library pays tribute to the mission of the book bike. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Educators in multiple states are currently speaking out in favor of pay raises for teachers and increased funding for education. Brandon Mejia reports how Tucsonans took to the streets this week with demands for change from the state legislature and Governor Ducey. Hundreds of teachers and supporters met at two schools in Tucson after class on Wednesday, all dressed in red with bullhorns in signs that read hashtag red for ed, a movement to bring better pay for Arizona teachers and increase funding for schools. I just think there needs to be change. I think that in, I see so many talented, qualified, amazing teachers that leave the profession because they're frustrated, because there's not funding, because their hands are tied, because they're asked to do so much every day, and it's not a nine-to-five job. That's Ellen Staub, and for the past 13 years, she has taught in the Amphi District and the Tucson Unified School District. Staub marched with hundreds of other teachers and supporters on the west corner of Congress Street and Granada Avenue Wednesday afternoon. We're united that we support each other. It's not just teachers out here. There's children out here. There's people in other professions out here supporting us, and that just means the world to me to have that. For many of the teachers in attendance, their demands are directed toward Governor Doug Ducey. Casey Berkson has taught at three different schools in the past five years in Tucson. She says legislators need to know that teachers are tired of being overworked and underpaid. So I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and I could go be a manager at a quick trip and make twice as much money. Arizona ranks 43rd in the nation for teacher pay according to an Associated Press ranking of average salaries. Berkson says until state lawmakers start putting educators first, teachers are going to continue to demonstrate with walk-ins, where they gather outside their school before the first bell and enter as a group. The big deal with the walk-ins is that, you know, we love teaching and we want to um, continue to teach our students. And so we don't want to walk out and deny our students a day, a day of learning. Eb Eberlin retired from teaching after many years and says insufficient school funding is denying students a quality education. It's the school to prison pipeline. We spend twice as much for each prisoner in Arizona than we spend on a student per year. So what's more important? Up in Phoenix, teachers have been demonstrating at the state capitol for five weeks in a row, demanding legislation that will boost teacher pay by 20% and increase education funding. Before the Tucson demonstration got underway, I spoke with Maria Jenis, a TUSD teacher and rally organizer. 
Jenis says even with a 20% pay raise, teachers in Arizona will still be making less than teachers in neighboring states. If I moved next door to New Mexico, as a new teacher, I would be making $15,000 a year more than new teachers in Arizona. TUSD Superintendent Gabriel Trujillo says teachers will continue to demonstrate for more pay and more school funding, but will do it in a way that does not harm student progress. Our teachers are committed to what are called walk-ins. Instead of walking out, instead of not providing service to students, our teachers are going to walk into the school. I think that is a very powerful and purposeful way to advocate for change. Teachers say they will continue to wear red every Wednesday and hold walk-ins throughout the school year. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Brandon Mejia. For 80 years, the Tohono O'odham Nation has hosted a rodeo in cells that celebrates the region's old and new traditions. Each year, among the riding and roping events, two competitive tournaments are played by teams composed of women and girls from communities around the nation and their sister tribes. Nick O'Gara was a spectator at one of these events in February, and he spoke to some women who tell a story of an old Tohono O'odham game that is gaining new popularity. It's midday, Saturday, at the annual Tahana Adam Rodeo and Fair, and April Ignacio is greeting people as they arrive to watch their favorite teams square off. Yeah, just leave it there and I'll, I'll get it. They're here to watch a game. The second annual Young Women's uh, Taka Tournament, which is... Uh, the game Taka is played exclusively by women. It's been played for a long, long time. According to Ignacio, it's considered older than the saguaro itself. She's coordinating women's traditional events this weekend, and that includes two taka tournaments. Today's is for girls 12 and younger, and the next day is for anyone older than that. It's uh, like hockey in a sense, field hockey in a sense that you have to get it to a goal, but the we don't wear uh, padding, cleats are not allowed, gloves are not allowed. Um. The taka field is fenced in, it's dirt, squarish about 80 yards on its longer side. It's got two narrow rectangular goal areas marked off with chalk. Ignacio says in the past, the game would have been played out in the open, sometimes over distances of miles. Young girls and their families are arriving with stripped and fashioned L-shaped branches. The, the instruments that are used are the usuka. An usuka is the mesquite tree branch. And so it is um, picked, roasted, carved, and then stripped. And then the way that the usaka is strengthened is it's let out in the sun to dry, uh, harden, you know. Uh, and then there's the object in play. The, the arda, uh, which is something you would compare to a ball. Uh, it's not a ball. She says it's two pieces of mesquite branch, a few inches long. And they are twined together with um, deer guts, uh, sinew, I guess is another. So how do they play? Western Two teams start at the center for each point. 
To score, a team needs to get the ara, that object made out of mesquite pieces and deer guts, to the point zone. The game doesn't stop until it's picked up. And so the other team can do what they need to to prevent them from picking it up. Ignacio exhaled when comparing it to field hockey, but says that's probably the best analogy. It's a running game, and she says it can get pretty rough. Um, we don't utilize helmets or pads, and, you know, games are forfeited. If teams, if women show up or girls show up wearing gloves, like, um, teams will protest them being able to play. And so All they need to play the game is the usaga and the ara. Some of the girls that are more skilled, they're able to actually hook it and they'll be able to throw it. You could be the smallest and the fastest runner, you know. You could be heavy set and be the the best blocker. It, you know, it's like there are positions that we've kind of um, established on our own. Ignacio and others tell me the game has grown in popularity in recent years, especially over the last two decades. One change is the increased attention to getting younger generations on the field. And, it, and traditionally it is a women's game for, for older women, um, but the popularity of the game itself is, is so, it's, it's, it's phenomenal down here. And in order for us to keep this game phenomenal and strong, we have to ensure that our younger, you know, our younger, our younger girls are playing it as well. But traditionally it is. Ignacio plays, of course. She says her daughter, who's currently at university out of state, plays as well. The very field we're standing on is named after her late mother, Verna and Enos. A lot of the teams are multi-generational teams, so <clears throat> we'll have, you know, uh, grandchildren and uh, grandmas on the field together, you know. Chris, you want to talk to reporters? <laughs> Celia Campus plays with a group that has more than one generation of women. And the, the team that I actually play with, they're all my nieces. So, yeah, there's, there's 13 of them, and they're all my nieces, and they love playing. And I try to bring them in every time, because my sister, she has 11 kids. So every time she has another girl, I'm like, bring her out. <laughs> like, bring her out, recruit her. <laughs> yeah, She'll so play tomorrow. She's here watching the young girls tournament, and she agrees the popularity of the game is growing. She says it helps build community. The sister, like I said, the sisterhood is great. Just getting to know one another and you know some of them you don't get to know because there's so many of us now and like that but the you know the, the younger girls will look up to the old girls they're like he's all nervous walking by you know like don't be scared Hi. two of those players young girls look up to are campus's nieces one is named tristan johnson or tt yeah i've been playing for like five years maybe that's so your past right here yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you like about it Mm, just being able to like play with my family, you know, like getting out there, running. I love running too. So. And the other is Dominique Cleveland. They both call themselves runners in the game. Celia says they're very fast. Dominique is in college, and she's been playing for about nine years. Like, this game is one of the funnest things you can a girl can do, especially it's only for girls. I know it's like, I know, and then you see guys sometimes they're like, this game looks cool, and I'm like, it is cool. And it's hard. It's also hard to like explain it to some people because they're like, you play with sticks, and I'm like, yeah, and you get to make this stick. Like 
Tournaments like this one give Dominique and Titi a chance to connect and reconnect with other players. Yeah, because you know how like there's uh, 12, 12 districts here, and like these districts and er, where everyone lives is far away, so you hardly ever see anybody. So like with with Thaka, like you, you finally see them at tournaments. Everybody just Everybody comes, comes together. together. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. April Ignacio plays, but not this weekend. Today, she's on the field, following the cluster of young players as it moves back and forth between the center and the ends of the dusty rectangle, sometimes shifting shape, sometimes with a fast player breaking away, chasing the aura to the point zone to pick it up and hold it in the air. This field holds special importance to her. It's named after her mother, Verna N. Enos, and she says many knew her as the Taka lady for her work helping to bring it back. This game was was never gone, but it, it wasn't played the way that it is played now. And so a lot of people credit her because um, the idea of bringing back this game or um, waking it up, so to speak, was to teach our young girls to play. Back in 2011, Verna N. Enos was named Grand Marshal of this rodeo and fair. She passed away later that year. The field was dedicated to her in 2016. Ignacio says decades after her mother started her research into the game, its strength and popularity continue to grow. Like, I think that this is our game. This has always been our game. And I think for a lot of these young girls, um, sometimes life isn't easy for them, but Thoka makes them special. I think for the most part, it, it for them, that it's okay, that maybe they don't speak the language or they don't know the songs or the dances, but Thoka connects them. And, and we love it. This year's tournament was dedicated to missing and murdered indigenous women. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nick O'Gara. There are photos of a Toka game in action on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Gary Stroutsos is a musician living in Vermont who's building bridges to the Southwest through his passion for indigenous music. Stroutsos is a flutist who approaches his instrument with thoughtfulness and care, embracing the legacy of Paul Horn and Herbie Mann, as well as Afro-Cuban styles. For about two decades, he's been creating a reputation among the Native American music community by learning traditional songs and participating in projects that commemorate and preserve this precious cultural resource. Gary Stroutsos and his trio will be playing a concert in Tucson this Sunday. I ask him to share some stories from his artistic and spiritual journey. 
when you're someone that's seeking sounds and you work with different cultural people that aren't your own, it, it sometimes it can be risky business, but when you come in as someone that can make a better world through music and sound, and, and when you show that passion to different people, I really think about, well, what did they hear maybe back in the day? You know, I was playing once for American Indian people and all the elders were in the front row and I played a song and Ushni was in front, an 82 year old elder, and she started crying. I said, what's wrong, Ushni? Why are you crying? I thought I did something wrong. She goes, oh, no, no, no. I just remember the songs, and we don't hear the flute in the Bitterroot Valley anymore, and it just reminded me of my relatives in days gone by. So whether it's a jazz thing, and you think about your time around Herbie Mann or Charles Lloyd, or you're out on the plains of Dakota, and you're thinking about working with Sitting Bull descendants, and what was the music about, and having them tell me that Sitting Bull was a composer of music, and I never knew that, and he gave people songs. So you see this kind of arc, a parallel of it doesn't matter what culture, that the music comes up from under, and for me, I try to you know, go into that world without having some kind of a new age trimming. You know, it's, it's to me, the music, it is a universal language, but you do have to get to know the people a little bit before you embark on a journey in whatever discipline it is. It's interesting for just a, a lad from Barrie, Vermont, that grew up in a granite manufacturing business, would start with great American jazz, move into Afro-Cuban music, and then discover the American Indian of the Northern Plains and then starting to come down here in the Southwest. Sometimes I look at it and I wonder how any of it really ever happened. So to answer your question, when you're on stage and you're performing or giving a lecture, you really want people to feel that spirit of place in that connection. Western instruments take a completely different discipline and mindset to execute at a high level. And me being around some of the greats did me in because you were searching for that level. When I first discovered the Northern Plains flute, cedar flute, I really dove into that and studied with different Indian people that came from different places to learn some of the melodies. The rim flute, they seem to resonate with me right now. And, and the difference is just the way the air tumbles, the sound of the different woods. You can really create a sound that you can call your own. I seem to be able to connect with people now in my older age with these wood flutes. They're, they really have been a great, it's been a great thing to happen for me to be able to make that transformation. Last year, my friend Matt Nelson, who's the head of the Arizona Trail Association, 
knew of a man, Clark Tenakanongba, who's a Hopi singer and Kachina Carver and was the head of the Veterans Affairs for Hopi Nation. He served this country. He's a wonderful man. His family's wonderful. He took me to Hope Villa to his office and I had replications of these rim flutes. And he had never seen them, but he had said that we used to have these and we remember these flutes. Would you play with me at the 100th anniversary for the Grand Canyon Music Festival last year? And I said, Clark, that would be an honor that you asked me to stand with you and play the rim flute. So we went and did two shows up there. But when we were in the Watchtower, I was thinking about Paul Horn and playing in sacred spaces. And my mind starts going, wait a minute, can we get, would Clark sing the songs that he composed about emergence and coming up from the Grand Canyon? Could I just fill in the cracks with the long tones on the rim flute and Matt was going to play some African udu drugs and blow into them like they used to do in Cuba in the 20s. They played Spanish kerosene jugs and before they had the double bass and boop, 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 boop. So Clark agreed to sing the songs and he said the reason I'm going to do this is because I like the sound of those flutes. I like what you're doing. Maybe that sometimes it takes someone from the outside to bring something back to help us remember. So we went up to Watchtower. We had to get the permit. We had a really good sound guy. We had three camera film shoot to make a documentary of it. Clark sang these beautiful songs. I played the rim flute in the cracks. So we recorded these songs, but at the end, he asked the National Park Gallery, they had to obviously have somebody there, I want to go up in the tower and I want to sing my prophecy song about the meaning of the Grand Canyon. And she decided to let him do it. They opened private worlds to me because they saw that I really had a passion to want to bring some of this to life. It's almost like a dream. The Gary Strautzos Trio will play a free concert in the garden at Tohono Jewel Park this Sunday, April 8th at 1.30 p.m.
How do you feel about your local library? Five years ago, Tucson blogger Rachel Miller launched an invitational project called Love Letters to Tucson, a way to explore our community through the eyes of others. Now Miller and the Pima County Public Library are asking the community to share what their local branch means to them. This time we'll hear from Melly Bowman, a University of Arizona student, who enthusiastically spends her volunteer time riding the library book bike around town. Dear Joel D. Valdez, Main Library Book Bike, I've ridden you since January of 2014, when I first received my volunteer training. Back then, I would assist Cassie to stops at the Ronstadt Transit Center. Then, I became a bike ambassador in August of 2014, when I was able to ride you to various stops. I've taken you to the Casitas on Broadway, multiple Ciclovias, the Tucson Festival of Books, Casa Maria Soup Kitchen, Mega Mania, the Santa Cruz River Farmer's Market, El Rio Health, Downtown Parade of Lights, Tucson Children's Museum, Brofest, and perhaps a few more stops that I do not recall at the moment. Bookbike, you've even been on the Sunlink streetcar with me, from the UA to the main library when we had a volunteer mix-up during the 2016 Tucson Festival of Books. I've seen the color transformation from orange and white to brilliant hues of blue, and your new latches, your new signage, your new seats, your new handlebar tape, you're practically brand new again. I have fond memories of that one time when we made it all the way to Quincy Douglas Library's Recyclorama, a 10-mile round-trip adventure, since a lot of clever routing made the journey longer than if I were on my regular bike. I didn't even have a volunteer with me, so Karen Green rode with me there, and another librarian rode with me back. I pedaled away with a load heavier than what I had brought, since they donated so many books for me to take back to the main library. Now that I think about it, that day and the rides to Jacobs Park were super long days that left me with sore legs. As of this year, I've ridden your sibling bikes over at Santa Rosa Library and Ekstrom Columbus Library a number of times to new locations. But Main Library Book Bike, you still remain near and dear to my heart, even though you're a little rough to ride and not quite as smooth as the others. It was August 15th, 2015, when I first took you to Analog Hour at ExoRoast. We continue to reunite for this every month. In fact, I just went this past weekend. So here's to nearly three years of this event. Until the next ride, I'm Melly Bullman. You can find a link to read more letters to the library and an invitation to write your own on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studio. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.